Hey, John, Christmas 2020, which means I'm sure Santa's packing you up a nice bag of COVID-19, John. Oh, way to spread the holiday cheer. Welcome to Care Talk, your holiday home for incisive debate about healthcare, business, and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Well, John, it's the end of the year, and it's time for our top 10 healthcare stories of the year. Now, we know number one is COVID-19, so we'll just get that one out of the way. But let's talk about the others. Here's my proposal, number 10, John. Number 10, the election. Remember, at the start of the year, we were talking about Medicare for all. It was actually pre-pandemic, and the Democratic uh, voters were deciding which candidate looked like Bernie was going to run away with it. And we ended up with COVID being the number one topic of the election. The election's uh, almost over as we speak here. may not be over this year, though. Well, I think isn't your guy still contesting it? I mean, we have we have we have a we have a clear winner, uh, but I think I think you're right. The election uh, was really interesting. It sorted out Americans' opinions about healthcare was one of the most important issues, and yet interestingly, we landed on a although the party might have looked left, the the party and the country chose the middle with Joe Biden. And I think that's going to be, that's really instructive for how we're going to be able to kind of progress healthcare legislation going forward. It's obviously the election's a big story, but the relevance for healthcare is, I think the moderates are one, or at least the, 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 the country wants to follow more of a middle path uh, rather than either, either no ACA or Medicare for all. All right. So what's number nine, John? Well, I think that uh, you know, let's let's as healthcare wonks, you gotta be you gotta be impressed with what's going on with Medicare Advantage, don't you think? John M.A. I love M.A. You know why? Because to me, it's Massachusetts, my home sweet home. But I think it really is something. You know, it's really Medicare Advantage really picked up. I think doubled the number of people in it over the past uh, decade. And it covers things that traditional Medicare doesn't. And it, and it's a good way. If there's going to be Medicare for all, Medicare Advantage for all might be a nice version of it. Well, I think that the other thing that's hard to fathom is you've got 10,000 people a day turning 65. You've got an entire generation, the boomers, that are going to dominate the, 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 the healthcare costs. And what's interesting is these, these, these uh, 60s kids who demanded choice are choosing increasingly Medicare Advantage. Managed care turns out to be the popular boomer option. And I think that's because the Medicare Advantage plans, that's the private side of the Medicare program, really have delivered. They've delivered in terms of lower costs and, and, and better outcomes, but they're also adding more and more benefits. It's, it's a fascinating move that, uh, you know, that managed care may win the day uh, in the over 65 crowd. Amen, brother. Number eight, interoperability rules. John, we're going from wonky to wonkier. What is interoperability? Just explain the word. It means the ability of two systems to be able to speak with one another. So everyone's going digital and has electronic health records, but they don't speak to each other. So you still have uh, you know, hundreds of millions of investment in, in an Epic system or a Cerner system by one hospital and another, and they have to fax records back and forth. That's unlike with an ATM. Imagine if you went to your ATM to withdraw money and the banks were faxing uh, your account information back and forth. So interoperability rules have come out from Health and Human Services, and we're going to see interoperability really happening 
in 2021. I think it's really important, David, but I think what, what's hard for people outside of healthcare to understand in a digital first world, <laughs> healthcare is still a fax first and sometimes a phone call and paper world. And this interoperability, this is really laying down the digital highway for healthcare when, and it's, it, it, it potentially could really have an impact on transparency and cost. I, I think it's really exciting, but it's been a, a long battle coming, but it's again, an interesting bipartisan support. The, the, the sort of the smartest folks on both sides of the aisle really support interoperability. It's the incumbents who run these slow, disconnected systems that are fighting it. If we get there, it really could potentially take a lot of costs out and potentially share outcomes. I, th- I think it's, I, th- I think it's, you know, not to, not to be ironic. It, it's epic. John, I think bipartisan is the word of the year for 2020. That's just that I think refers to the two-person party that we're having for New Year's Eve uh, due to COVID. So what's lucky seven, John? Lucky seven. Lucky seven. Well, you insisted on putting this, but I'm not. (laughs) I was sucking up to you, John. Come on. Drug pricing? How can that be a, a, a top 10 issue in a year when we made no progress, David? Oh, there's some progress, John. There was a lot of hot air coming out of Washington about this. Uh, Trump decided that he's going to uh, outsource uh, price setting to Australia, New Zealand, and Liechtenstein. Well, he outsourced a lot of thinking this year. But how does that affect the average patient or the average plan? I don't think it's going to affect it at all. They're, it's going to be tied up in legislation. It doesn't have a lot of authority. And it, it couldn't get through, legis- it didn't get much legislative support. John, I think you're right. I mean, I put it there because it's lucky and I know you like to uh, have a lucky number and it's your favorite topic. I, I think it was number seven because you talked about it so much. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have wouldn't have hit it. John, I'm going to give number six, number six. I'll see if, see if you like this one better. Home care, okay? There's actually Yay, a- <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, so there's actually a lot of uh, activity that came out of um, HHS and, and CMS uh, this year, including expanding what could be done uh, with telehealth, relaxing some HIPAA requirements related to that, and more flexibility for hospitals to be able to treat patients in their homes um, in light of the surge of COVID. And hopefully this is something that's going to become uh, more permanent in 2021. Now, you've done actually some surveying on this, John. Yeah, no, but I, I think the, 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 clearly in a time of COVID, no one wants to go to a hot box of uh, infection like a hospital or a nursing home with half of nearly half of the people who died of COVID being nursing homes. So people want to clearly avoid that. But what's remarkable is I think the consumer choice aspect of this, once you create the opportunity to get more care at home, we did a care at home survey and nearly 75% of consumers would prefer, they love their doc, but they would prefer to access care at home instead of going back to a medical facility after a major medical event. And nearly 100% of all health plan executives agreed that home care at home is better for the plan and for the members, but they're not quite sure how they're going to get it done. So obviously that's a tailwind for CareCentrics, but it's honestly a tailwind and a support for the digital first alternatives at home, the nurse coaching and advocates, the, the D- digital first. Digital first, John, that's like a, a America first. Can I say America digital first? Does that work? Number five is? Number five is rural hospital closures. You know, the hospitals are shutting down. Used to be people would say like the steel mill shut down or something shut down in a town and it was dead. Now a hospital shuts down and that's it. I mean, people, you know, the uh, people locked into the major metro areas that do the kind of navel gazing that you guys do up in Boston don't realize it. But I mean, just in the first three months of 2020, 
18 rural hospital closed. Uh, sorry, last that, that's 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 I guess it's last year and the first few months of 20. 18 hospitals. That's a lot of hospitals. I mean, more than 170 have closed since 2005. David, that that's going to create, you know, the we talk about food deserts, but healthcare deserts are even more dangerous. And I think that there's COVID is the 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 critical the kind of the, the catalyst right now, but I don't think we've got a good model for rural healthcare. Otherwise, we wouldn't have 170 hospitals closing nationwide since 05. And those are hospitals that are often uh, the only source of health care um, for the, the communities they served. And so I, I, I think that, that, that um, rural care is a, is, is a crisis and it's under-recognized. And I think that to put it as number five, I think is, a, is, is, is critical because we need to raise people's attention. Well, John, you're right. And hopefully what's being done with home care is actually going to help to make up for the fact that some of these rural hospitals aren't available. I don't think the increase of home care is actually causing a problem for the hospitals. That's not what's leading to their crisis. Those people shouldn't be in the hospital anyway, but it's a real, it's a real issue. Now, John, number four, you know, the, the pandemic has been driving everybody crazy, quite literally. Mental health is a big problem now. Well, first of all, I think mental health has always been underdiagnosed and undercovered and probably not gotten the support it needs. As you know, we've tried very hard at CareCentrics to highlight that that's a, it's an, in, an integral part of how people should be thinking about whole person care. But that in a time of isolate, we, we had an epidemic growing of loneliness before the lockdowns of COVID-19. You know, just in uh, the C- according to the CDC in June, forty percent of all American adults feel like they've experienced a mental health or substance abuse issue, and gosh, more than t- just over ten percent, eleven percent have considered suicide. Those are terrifying statistics going into um, a cold winter, not just from a temperature perspective, but from a connection perspective. I think we've got to come to grips with. Um, the fact that, well, one, that mental health is a is an issue that uh, isn't just a kind of a clinical one, but it's a social one. And we need to we need to deal with it else. In addition to the, the mental health statistics, we're also seeing a troubling rise in deaths of despair, you know, opioid abuse, uh, uh, alcohol. Um, and I think that all is is part of it. And I think I hope that the covid moment will 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 allow us to to focus on it and stay focused on it to come up with solutions that are healthcare and not healthcare. I mean, don't you think David this is a bigger challenge than just getting care to the right people? Oh, this is a this is a huge uh challenge, John. I absolutely agree with you. And the the statistics are just startling when you hear about 40% of people having a, a mental health or a substance abuse issue. Now, number three, John, I'm scratching my head a little bit about someone, I think, slipped this one in as a joke. It put in the name of like one of my great aunts or something like that, Myrna. What the heck is she doing in here? You know, it's the it's the mRNA technology that is the on the inside of the Moderna and the Pfizer uh, vaccines. This is a technology, an, an approach to biotech drugs that injects um, almost the, the, the equivalent of a, of, a, of a little bit of a decision machine for your virus system. So it teaches your virus just crude, very crudely how to react to certain uh, pathogens or disruptions. And it has been explored for many years unsuccessfully 
on in the cancer drug world, um, and it actually had gone out of favor. But Moderna and Pfizer, and actually, it's about two thirds of all of the uh, vaccines that are being considered in the U.S. are using this new biologic technique, and it's it's driving, it's showing great success. You know, over ninety percent success. And what's exciting about that is that it's um, it's well, a it's rapidly going to be scaled and leveraged to 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 vaccinate the country. But I think underneath that is a validation of new technology that could be used across a number of other therapies, particularly cancer. I mean, Moderna had I think ten or eleven other use cases outside of COVID, and they quickly pivoted to COVID. But there's a this is super exciting, and I think we are at the cusp of a biotech moment. You know, we we beat up uh, the drug companies on drug pricing on a pretty regular basis. That's largely about the unnecessary increases in in costs for simple chemical compounds that whose patents have come for many many uh, come and gone many many years ago. But this new rain, round of biotech drugs and biotech companies, I think we are in the cusp of really turning diseases that were quite deadly and curing them. And this is the RMNA technology is one of a number of them. Uh, um, the CAR T's would be another one where this, we could be at the beginning of a major biotech moment where, which could transform healthcare and disease. John, you know, names are tough. And uh, it took me a while to realize that uh, Moderna is actually has mRNA uh, within the name, sort of like modern RNA or, you know, mode RNA. It's kind of cool. And their their ticker symbol is mRNA. So it all kind of comes together and I'm looking forward to it. It should be a real shot in the arm uh, for it next year. Now, we already told people about number one, COVID-19. So this is sort of like, you know, when they have the people coming up to the podium and uh, number two is announced and then people know who's number one, but we didn't announce number two, John. This is big. It's big, but it's not real. It's virtual care. <laughs> So, David, what do you think? What, what, why, should, why should we care about virtual care? Exactly. It's like caring about nothing. You know, <laughs> it's like, so the reason to care, John, is that uh, people like you and I have been at this for like 20 plus years looking at uh, things that were called, you know, web visits and, you know, e-health and m-health and all this sort of stuff. And you saw in one week in March, 10 years of progress in the use of telehealth, because all of a sudden you didn't have all the excuses of why it might not work, but actually said, hey, we can't actually see people in person. What are we going to do? And boom, the technology is actually ready. Turns out patients like it. The physicians like it pretty much as well. And you saw some big deal making this year, John, including an $18.5 billion merger between Teladoc and Lavongo, which are two leaders in this field. You know, something big is happening. That's certainly the story of 2020. I don't know for sure if it'll be the story of 2021 or if people just float back to the status quo. Well, I think, you know, your favorite political theorist, Lenin, once said that there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. And I think that the weeks rolling into er the early stage of the lockdown where the federal government dropped all of their or many of their restrictions in the states on virtual care it, we really showed that whether it's, uh, you know, I think that um, the utilization of the Epic Telehealth, that's the big hospital system, uh, um, computer system that has a telehealth capability, um, that hospitals went from 3 or 4% utilization to 80% utilization, that televisits went through the roof across pretty much every category of medicine. And 
what uh, I think consumers found is that that they were really happy with that access and convenience, and doctors got more comfortable with it. And I think it's the first step towards people getting comfortable with innovations in virtual care. I still think it's a we have a very sticky system, and I think most of the hospitals and doctors and the medical industrial complex is going to fight it. But I think that the digital first and, and uh, digital integrated solutions, we've shown that we can, as a country, pivot and make it work. And I, I, I think it's, I, I think it's a, I, and I hope it's a uh, innovation that'll stick. Um, one of the things that I think will help that is the kind of market power of the Teladocs and the Lavangos and the Amwells and the and the MD Lives, all of which are big corporations that are getting a lot of money uh, to support the integration, exploration, and scaling of their virtual care platforms. Because virtual care is really convenient care for for patients, and I think that's a, that's that healthcare's missed convenience. So I'm, I really do think virtual care is a big story, and, and it will have the market power to support it. Now, David, drum roll, please. What can you say new about COVID-19? Well, I'm going to say, John, that uh, COVID-19 is not only the biggest healthcare story of the year, it's the biggest story of the year, and not just here, but globally. So it's really a huge thing. If you compare it with what we were talking about as top stories last year, you know, vaping, you know, which was a big deal. But really, you think about COVID-19 versus vaping. It's just that public health has become the story um, of the year. And I think that you're going to see, uh, it's probably going to be the biggest story next year. And you're going to see other kinds of global things that really affect people like climate change become the big stories. And so that's my new thing to say about COVID-19 to contextualize it. Well, I think that for me, the most important long-term effect of COVID-19 is to look at the stark inequality of outcomes that Nearly half of the people who've died are people of color, even though that people of color are nowhere near half the population, that there are in healthcare deserts, even in inner city areas where people don't have access to care, it's been desperate that the the essential, we've redefined the meaning of essential workers. The, the things that I think are going are gonna to be sustained from this COVID-19, well, A, obviously a great public, we got a, a, a great investment in public health. But I think it, it should remind us of the dangers of the inequalities of access and care that are in the system. And I think we got to fix that, David. And that, to me, is if, if we had more of those solutions in place, frankly, many fewer people would have died. Well, John, that's it for our 2020 Care Talk year in review. Thankfully, we are going to have a chance to look ahead to what I hope will be a brighter future. And next week, we're going to do our 2021 look ahead. So meanwhile, I'm David Williams president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Thanks for listening.